0: Good help can be so hard to find, especially if you're the only person on earth. God creates the world and everything in it and declares it good, but when he looks at Adam, he notices there's one important thing still left to do. Today on in Storied, we talk about English getting in the way of understanding the Bible and why getting married cost Adam an arm and a leg, not just a rib. So let's get started. Welcome to Storied. I'm Corey Smith. We are looking at the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. And I mentioned Adam and Eve a couple of times last week, but as I was rereading this story again, I remembered that the woman isn't even called Eve until chapter 3. So spoiler alert, the woman from Genesis 2 is Eve, you're just not supposed to know that until the end of chapter 3. All kidding aside, her not being named until that point is relevant, and we'll talk about why that is when we get there. But for now, let's turn our attention back to the man, Adam, whose name you'll remember from last week is simply Hebrew for man or human. If you're the only one of your kind, you don't really need a proper name other than simply what you are. He's just the man, and that's all there is to it. But God has given him responsibility. He has dominion over this garden. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 says, God put him there so he can work it and keep it. But a few verses down from there, God sees a need. He sees that it isn't good for the man to do this alone and that God himself will provide a helper fit for him. Now, the man isn't completely alone because God is with him. God isn't watching all of this from afar somewhere. He's right there with Adam in the garden. And as we talked about last week, it is Adam's relationship with God that sustains his very life. If God is with him, he will not die. But apparently there's more to life than simply not dying because God has determined that Adam needs something else someone else, I should say, who God is going to provide, and that is a helper fit for him. I want to stop here and make the acknowledgement that where we are headed with this obviously has a lot to do with marriage, and some of you listening are not married. For some, that is by choice, but for others, it is not by choice. Some of you are married but have no children. Again, that may or may not be by choice. Remember that God gives humanity a twofold mission in Genesis chapter 1 have dominion and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth we participate in this mission collectively but that doesn't mean we all contribute to it in the same ways or even to the same extent what i'm getting at is this no one should feel left out of god's charge because of their circumstances there is always a calling we each have to respond to and no human relationship can replace supplement or improve upon Your relationship with God. So I'm inviting everyone in regardless of life circumstances to see how this plays out. Let's get back to Adam. Another way that Adam is not completely alone is because there are lots of animals there in the garden formed from the ground just like he was and these creatures will be the starting place in the search for this helper fit for him. And so all of the animals are paraded before Adam. But none of them can be the kind of companion that God has in mind. But two helpful things do come from this exercise, though. The first one is very practical. He gets to name all of these animals. Naming things is a big deal in the Bible and in the culture at large that the Bible comes out of. To name something is to have authority and responsibility over it. This isn't entirely foreign to us. We get to name our children, and if you make a scientific discovery, or invent something, you usually get to decide how to name it. So, Adam being the one to name the animals here is him exercising the dominion that God has given him. The second thing that comes out of this is simply the recognition of what God is going for in providing this helper for the man, or at least what he's not going for. The animals, for their part, do have some notable similarities with the man. Both were created on the sixth day. Both were formed from the ground. But the fact that none of these will work speaks to the qualitative difference between humans and animals in God's creation. So, the animals will not do for what God has in mind for Adam. God is looking for a helper fit for him. So, what makes for a good helper? Well, if we're thinking maybe some help with manual labor around the garden, opposable thumbs would be a good place to start, which knocks out just about all of the animals, except for monkeys, maybe pandas. Seriously, though, we are at something of a disadvantage already when trying to understand what is meant by helper because the meanings of words can change slowly over time based on their accepted use. And despite English translations of the Bible having been faithfully updated on a regular basis over the past hundred years or so, helper has been used here almost universally, going back to the King James Version, even William Tyndale's Bible, which is earlier than the King James. So what comes to mind for you when you think of a helper? If you have kids, maybe you have a young helper at home who helps you out around the house or in the yard, My wife and I are grateful to have two good helpers like that. I have experience in the construction industry for years, and a helper is what we often refer to as a less experienced, usually younger worker who is coming alongside a journeyman to better learn the trade and be an extra set of hands on the job, like an apprentice. I suspect that much of the time when we refer to someone as helper, we mean something a bit secondary. Not insulting, but at least some kind of connotation that the helper is somehow perhaps less qualified or experienced than the person being helped. It doesn't always have to mean that, but I think much of the time it does. Often enough that it's worth pointing out that that kind of helper is certainly not what the writer of Genesis has in mind. Thankfully, we can get a better understanding by looking at the original language. The Hebrew word for helper here is Azer, and it pops up about 20 other times in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you two instances. The first is in Exodus 18 4. One of Moses' sons is named Eliezer, literally means, my God is help. You can hear the Azer part in the latter half of his name. It's very typical for Hebrew names in the Bible to have some kind of significance around what is going on with the family at the time the child is born. In Moses's case, he names his son My God is help because God delivered him from the sword of Pharaoh. A second example is in Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-nine, which says, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and the sword of your triumph. In both of these examples, you notice two things. And the first is that the help takes place in a military context. The helper comes to the aid of the one being helped in battle in order to rescue and secure victory. And the second thing is that the helper, in both cases, is God himself. So there can be no secondary or lesser than status. In fact, nearly all of these Old Testament uses of azer refer to God. Most of the time, it's Israel calling on God to deliver them from their enemies. That's the kind of help that God is being called on to give. Now, thinking back to the helper that God is about to give the man, this lends us some perspective as to what God has in mind. But we might ask, what would be the point of giving Adam that kind of help? There's no one else on earth, certainly no invading armies, The animals aren't even eating people at this point. But remember, the man is limited. He is dust, and there are things afoot that he's not even aware of yet, things he can't see, know, or understand. Unseen spiritual beings just might have it out for him. And in the very next chapter, there is an invader coming. He'll be coming in the form of an animal, and he is very much seeking to devour the humans through deception. So God wants Adam to have a helper to help him stand against that, because it is coming. And for the woman, the azer, it makes what happens in Genesis chapter 3 all the more tragic when you realize the role she's supposed to play. She's supposed to be a powerful ally. That's the way I've heard Tim Mackey translate the word azer, and I think it does the original meaning justice. A powerful ally in the battle against the enemy. The next part of the story shows us how God will bring the woman to the man. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Almost all English translations have rib as what God took from the man to create the woman. The New English Translation is the only one I have found that has something different. The New English Translation is very good, by the way. The sheer number of footnotes is overwhelming, which makes the printed version a very big Bible to tote around, but it's a great resource. The New English Translation has a footnote for this verse that says, Traditionally translated rib, the Hebrew word actually means side. This first came to my attention listening to Tim and John over at Bible Project. Those guys and their team do a great job, and I highly recommend checking them out. But again, if you research this similarly to the way we just did the word helper, you find that this Hebrew word "sela" occurs over 40 times in the Old Testament. Of those 40 times, only in Genesis 2 is it ever translated rib. Most of the time it's referring to the side of a building, I'm just scrolling through blueletterbible.org here, another great resource, and I'm seeing side of the Ark of the Covenant, side of the tabernacle, sides of walls within the temple, and one instance, it's the side of a hill. And I see only one other use of this word where it's talking about a person. And in that case, it definitely means the person's whole side, not just a rib, Job 18.12 says his strength shall be hunger bitten and destruction shall be ready at his side. Selah is used to mean side in all of these other cases and only in Genesis 2 do we have it there as rib. I mean, I can understand why we've translated it rib. It solves a problem for us because if we try to imagine this scene like a surgery taking place and God is the surgeon operating on Adam. He puts him to sleep, cuts him open, removes the rib, then sews him back up and proceeds to make Eve from the rib. So Adam is down a rib after the surgery, but otherwise he's fine. Many of us have lost more substantial body parts than that, like kidneys or gallbladders, even entire arms and legs in some circumstances. That Adam gets to have this companion for the low, low price of a rib is is really a bargain by comparison. I've got a lot of ribs, but I've only got two sides, a right and a left. I can get on just fine without a rib, but if you take one of my sides, well, I'm gonna have to figure something out. But I think that's why we translate Selah here as rib. Adam can't lose an entire side of his body and still survive, right? So we think, well, it's gotta be rib. But this is only if we are prioritizing the material components of the story as making the most sense possible over and above the depth of meaning that God is trying to get across to us. Let's skip ahead to Genesis chapter 5 for a minute. It's a genealogy, and it starts by saying, this is the book of the generations of Adam, Adam. Remember, even though we're accustomed to Adam simply being the proper name of the first man who ever lived, Adam or Adam, if you want the Hebrew pronunciation, means man, and more generally mankind or human or humanity. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created Adam, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them, and He blessed them and named them Adam. Did you catch that? He named them Adam. Adam, in the beginning, is two and one. So if you want to have male and female as separate beings, and I'm going to make a borrowed joke here, if you want male and female, you have to split the Adam. Two halves, two sides, one image of God. They are the image of God, each individually, but especially collectively. The substance of what is being communicated in terms of who they are, both in relation to each other and to God, is better understood when you see the woman as a side, as a half, rather than just a rib. For many of us, this may seem like a new way of looking at it. And if you're a longtime Bible reader, longtime Christian, the newness of it might bring with it some apprehension. And if it does, that's totally understandable. But interestingly, this way of reading the story is not new at all, but very old. When Bible scholars are trying to best determine what something in the Bible means, since the original writers of these ancient words aren't available to interview, they'll use several different tools at their disposal using other parts of the Bible is very helpful and a great starting point which is what we've done here with the words for helper and rib trying to identify the kinds of ways these words are being used but there are also the writings available to us from other ancient writers who were closer to the times and circumstances in which different parts of the Bible were written and we gain insights from those we have writings from early church leaders that shed some light on parts of the New Testament for us. They function a bit like commentaries in that way. Seeing the way they understood it then can be very helpful to us now because we are a long way removed from the time and place and culture in which the New Testament was written. Similarly for the Old Testament, we have something called Midrash, which is like early Jewish commentaries. And what we find in one such commentary is that at least some Jewish rabbis we're having this understanding of the story as early as the 3rd and 4th century. It's a very ancient interpretation from the Jewish perspective. So ironically, Rib is actually the newer way of looking at it and Side, most likely, better aligns with the writer's original intent. Which may mean I'm left holding the question of how, logistically, Adam can be split in half. But what I gain is a depth of meaning that's not fully available to me if I try to understand it as a rib that is taken instead of a side. Now I see the woman as less a non-essential bone and more like a load-bearing wall. Much like we talked about in the first two episodes, when we shift our focus from primarily questions of material origins Onto the deeper truths that the Bible is trying to communicate, I can be okay with not understanding how in the world this would work, scientifically or anatomically. Because really, it's the modern Western world that's pressuring me to try and answer those kinds of questions first. And until I do, the other kinds of questions aren't even allowed on the table. But when has knowledge of science and anatomy ever really been able to adequately answer the question of what it means to be human? I'm not trying to dismiss those disciplines at all. They are invaluable to us. But the kinds of questions that the early chapters of Genesis are made to answer may not always be the questions we bring to these stories. And if we can manage to adjust our questions to the kinds of answers these stories are designed to provide, I think we'll be much more satisfied. Does God have to make the woman in the way that he does? No, of course not. He doesn't need raw materials, whether it's a rib or a whole half of a human, or dust. Nor did he need six days to create the world. There is deep meaning and purpose in the ways God chooses to create. And the ways that God creates in Genesis gives windows into the truths the Bible wants us to recognize. So after God forms the woman, he brings her to the man. And it's a big moment. The search for the azer has come to an end. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, if she just come from his ribs, she's really only bone of my bone, not flesh of my flesh. He goes on. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's important to note here that man, in what I just read, is not Adam because it has been every time up until this point. Man here is the Hebrew word ish, and woman is ish-shah. So you've got this nice little wordplay. She shall be called ish-shah because she was taken out of ish. Our English translators use woman and man because that wordplay works for us too. Ish and isha can mean simply man and woman, but they also mean husband and wife, which is certainly the case here. And then you have this little note from the narrator saying that therefore an ish shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his isha, and they shall become one flesh. This statement carries even more punch behind it when you consider the Ish and the Ishah are each half of an Adam to begin with. So their rejoining is, in a sense, returning to their original combined image-bearing state. Why else would an Ish, a man, leave his father and mother? These are the closest relationships that he knows. It's because of an even closer relationship that awaits him. A relationship that goes all the way back to the beginning. She is his side, half of his own self, a powerful ally against a spiritual enemy that has his sights set on unraveling everything that is good in this holy space. So next week, we will look at who this enemy is and how he does his dirty work in this story. And we need to know because he still shows up in all of our stories today. We hope you're enjoying and storied. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review so others can find us. We'll see you next week.